0: Hi, I'm Russ Kunkel, and you're listening to the Rock Solid Podcast.
1: Make me a deal and make it good for me. I won't get full of myself, so I can't afford to be. This is small town music, this is big town music. He's ahead of his time, you know, but he can't use it. If only he could prove it. Well, tomorrow's just a song way
2: Hey, everybody, welcome to Rock Solid, the comedy podcast for all things music, both new and classic. I'm Pat Francis, and joining me today, this is the first time I've ever done something like this. Normally, when I interview someone, it's a one-on-one interview, but I wanted to do something a little bit different today. So I've got the entire immediate family band in the Zoom room. We've got Russ Kunkel. Say hello, Russ.
0: Hey, how you doing, everybody?
2: We got Leland Sklar.
3: I'm here with you,
2: <laughs> Steve Postel. Hello, hello, Danny Cooch Korchmar. Hello, and Waddy Wachtel. Hello, Pat. <laughs> nice to hey, see you guys. All we right, gotta go now. Sorry. <laughs> well, that look, <laughs> if you had to go now, it was still a thrill, and I appreciate it. First of all, the reason you guys are here is you got a new album out. I'll hold it up. It's uh, Slipping and Sliding, it's an EP. And this thing just debuted at number six on the Billboard chart for blues albums that you guys have got to feel pretty great about that. I mean, we do of course, (laughs) I mean,
4: no, we're great. We're we're glad to be anywhere.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, look, 50 years, basically 50 years in the business, you guys have been making a living in music and to, you know, still have the love from your fans and the music buying public, especially when it's, You know, it's hard to chart anything now in music. So congratulations, guys. Uh, Applause on that. Great job. Thank you very much. So this is an EP. Is there going to be a full album down the road?
5: We finished our album, but because of uh, the world disease situation, Mm -hmm. everything's been put on hold and everything's on the back burner. So uh, our record was actually scheduled to come out this month, um, along with the documentary that's being done about us by Denny Tedesco but everything is on back burners now. So uh, we're not really sure when the record will come out.
2: All righty. And Danny cool. Tedesco has been on the show before when he had his, um, when he had the, uh, Oh, what was, uh, now why am I losing it? Wrecking the wrecking crew documentary. So he's doing a documentary on you guys and everything you've done since the beginning. Yeah. Yep. That, that's going to be incredible. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to start with you, Steve, because for me, you're the new guy. I know these other four guys and I don't know as much about you, but I want to give everyone a little bit on Steve right now. So we know Steve, you've been uh, a touring musician, a session musician. You've played with David Crosby, Jennifer Warren's, Michael McDonald, John Oates, Robin Ford. And that's just to name a couple. You've also, you recorded and mixed the final performances by Robbie Shanker. You've scored some movies, some documentaries, and you know You have solo albums in your own right Including Time Still Knocking And I want to tell you that I love the song Long Way Home on that album There was
6: thunder in the darkness In the fire down below We were lost without a compass We nowhere left to go Had a dream it was forsaken For a change in circumstance Maybe all that we so one more chance
2: For me and for maybe some of our other listeners, welcome, and it's nice to meet you, Steve. How did you get hooked up with these four guys? It's
7: all Danny Korchmar's fault. it uh, gave us a lot of money. <laughs> uh, well, it, was, it, it came about really. Um, I That record you're talking about, uh, Time Still Knocking, was on uh, Emergent Records. And um, while I was making that record, uh, I met Mr. Leland Sklar. I grabbed him at the NAM show and forced him to play on my record. Uh, I had a mutual friend with Waddy. Waddy played on a song, and so, and then uh, Russ's son, Nathaniel Kunkel, ended up mixing the
2: record. Oh, nice. Okay, cool.
7: Nathaniel invited me to the Troubadour show, and with the reunion show with Carol King and James Taylor. Yeah. And at the Troubadour show, I met I met Russ, Dad from Nathaniel, and then I met Danny, and we we connected. And when Danny moved out here, we started working together. That's sort of my entry into this amazing cast of characters.
2: And do you guys feel like an immediate family? Like, is there is there a brotherhood? Like, especially the four guys from long ago. Like, are you guys? Do you guys feel like family? Like, Leland, if you needed something in the middle of the night, could you call one of these guys on the phone and they'd be there for you?
3: Absolutely not.
2: (laughs) <laughs> of course not. But, but if they called me, I would be there. Okay. You know, I'm, so Cooch,
3: Cooch came up with the name The Immediate Family, and it is the most aptly named band you could have ever imagined. I mean, to think that we've been playing music together for 50 years, and words have never passed between us that weren't complimentary, supportive, caring. Uh, I've, I've never known a, a group of men who I love more than than these guys. Uh, it's a, it's a remarkable uh, relationship we have. Where you hear so many bands that are, you know, they're successful musically, but they're always fighting and they yeah. travel in different buses and they don't. Um, we really have a, a, an immediate family brotherhood, and I'm really proud to be uh, associated with these guys on any level. And if they need anything, um, they they know my uh, answering service number. <laughs>
2: Very nice. Um, before we started to record, someone uh, brought up the section. Was there any thought to just using that name for this band?
3: No, none at all.
2: None at all. This is
3: a totally different entity, what's completely.
2: Um,
3: it's part of our lineage um, to how we got here, but um, it, it was very, very different than this.
2: Now, I had the pleasure of seeing you guys pre-COVID at uh, Bogies in Westlake Village in December. Oh, wow. That was uh, that was a thrill for me, first of all, because I didn't even know you guys were performing. I, like, stumbled across it, like, on the internet. All of a sudden, I'm like, wait a minute. Lee and Wadi and Cooch and Russ are playing at Westlake Village. I live in Woodland Hills, so I, I, I'm in Westlake Village in, you know, 20 minutes. So I was like, I just told my wife, I go, I'm going to a concert tonight. She's like, it's Christmas. What do you mean you're going to a concert tonight? And I said, you don't understand. This... These are legends. I have to go to this. So um Santa's gonna be there. Yeah. Well yeah, San- I yeah, I took a picture, I brought it, I go, see Santa was on base. Um <laughs> your press person and uh is, is Lisa Roy how is she your manager, Cooch?
4: She's not our manager, she helps us with press. She's she's yes. she's a brilliant uh uh consultant, music consultant, she's great with our press. And fortunately we're very lucky to have her uh on yeah. our team helping us with our press press releases, yeah.
2: And Lisa set me up with it with some tickets, and she was fantastic when I got there. I got to I got to say hi to you guys, and you guys were all super nice, and uh, that was a real thrill. So, and the show was amazing, and I love. I think Danny, I think you're the one that said uh, we're a cover band, but we play all our own material. So, yes. fantastic. This question is for Wadi. Wadi, you got three guitar players and you got three vocalists here. When you go into the studio, how do you decide who's going to play the solo?
5: Well, usually it's the, the guy who wrote the song, really usually has the kind of the first say of that, you know. Uh, and um, then we ignore what he wants to do and figure out who's got a good idea to play a solo. <laughs> but uh, it works out pretty well. You, you know, Danny's songs, a lot of times, Danny will, you know, let me. Blast leads while he's singing, so that works out, and uh, vice versa, you know. Well, uh, we split them up surprisingly easily.
2: Oh, you know, well, that's okay. It can,
5: it can get to be a nightmare with three necks up there, but <laughs> it works out very smoothly, actually. Danny and, and I have been playing with each other for so long, we know where the other guy isn't going to be, yeah. And Steve has such a different style than either of us that what he does fits right in between where we are. So it's really very cool. And then when and we, I, we don't listen to him anyway, so it doesn't matter.
2: And when I saw the band live, I uh, assumed that maybe Steve was going to be singing lead on all the songs and you guys were the backing band, but that's not true. You guys are all, you know, the three guitar players are all handling vocals. Steve, how do we decide who sings uh, lead on these songs? Is it also a songwriter gets first it, choice?
7: I would say that most of it's songwriter, but then there's instances where, like, uh, there's a couple of great songs that Danny wrote with Don Henley, and Don Henley has a higher voice, and it just seems more natural for me to sing it. Um, All this stuff, as they said, it's it's amazingly organic. I mean, there's a song that Danny and I ended up singing in in harmony, because it's just whatever's best. It's all about what's the best thing for this piece of music. And because we all have different styles and skill sets, it, it kind of w- works itself out. They can always just turn me down. So that, that yeah, works.
2: exactly. And that's the smart way to go. If you're all on board with whatever services, the, the material, the best, that's the way to go. If you start getting egos involved, then that's not going to be good. So uh, that's cool that you guys musically are all on the same page. Peter Asher was on the show about a month and a half ago. And I I told him this same story, but I have to tell you guys too. The first time I ever saw the name Leland Sklar, Russ Kunkel, and Danny Korchmar was on James Taylor's JT album. Uh, Your Smiling Face was the first, as a 13-year-old kid, that was the first 45 single I ever purchased. That song is, to this day, I love it. It starts out with uh, Russ, immediately we hear drums, bass comes in, then the guitar riff, and we're off and running, and I, I never get tired of your smiling face.
8: Whenever I see your smiling face, I have to smile myself Because I love you, yes I do Give me that pretty little pout it turns me inside out There's something about you baby I don't know Isn't it amazing a man like me can feel this way Tell me how much longer it will grow stronger every day
9: Oh how much longer I thought I
2: was in love That that is a great album you guys are on point for that entire record, so bravo! Thank you, thank you,
3: thank you.
2: When you're making an album like that, because I think that, I think it's James's uh, second most popular or most you know highest selling album after Sweet Baby James. Do you know you're making something special, or does it just feel like business as usual? Russ, do you want to answer that one?
0: Sure, um, I'd like to start out by saying the, one of the main reasons why that album in particular, and of course, you know, James's previous albums are so iconic is because of uh, the great producer that, that produced those records, Peter Asher. And he is, uh, if there was a sixth member of this band, it would be Peter, you know, because he he is, has been so influential in all of our careers. And uh, um, j- just for instance, on the, on the JT album, we were running on, you know, 16 cylinders then. The band had toured previously many years. And when we went into the studio, it was a well-oiled machine, you know, and James was the artist, and we just did everything we could to play the right accompaniment for him. at Peter being at the helm, you know, made sure that you know it was it was done in a professional way. so and and in hindsight, you know it's twenty twenty, you know looking back on on the success of those records. You know, we. I think at the time, I know for myself, I was just happy to be working and happy to be playing with these knuckleheads. But uh, I, I, I think we all pinch ourselves when we, we look back in time and and see what a great body of work we've been a part of.
2: Yeah, and Peter, uh, when he talked about this album, he was very, very humble with, uh, with whatever his contribution was. He wasn't, um, he wasn't taking a lot of credit. That that was sweet. But uh, I gave him credit because, uh, you know. The producers keeping you guys in line, right? Absolutely right, <laughs> uh, Danny. Oh. You you have a you have a song you wrote on that album, "Honey, Don't Leave LA," which is a killer track. that work when you're working with a solo artist like James Taylor? Is he asking, does anyone have songs, or are you uh, so comfortable with him that at that time that you were able to just say, hey, I've got this song I'd like you to check out?
4: More like that. More like your second uh, statement, you know. Okay. And uh, James and Peter were very open to all kinds of stuff. Uh, when I had um, Honey Don't Leave L.A., I thought James would you know, sing the hell out of this, this tune. So I played it for, for James and Peter, and sure enough, we ended up cutting it that day. I think, I think we cut it the same day I played it for him.
2: It's a great one. Not one bad song on that album. Again, I want to talk about, uh, I want to get back to the immediate family. I kind of just went off on a tangent, but uh, again, the album slipping and sliding. We have, we have uh, three original songs on here that you guys wrote specifically for the album. Then you guys do a cover of New York minute, which Danny, you co-wrote with Don Henley. do a cover of werewolves of london which wadi co-wrote with warren Zevon. why uh, why not five originals why did you guys feel like you wanted to put some of uh, the old tunes on did you just want to put uh, your own stamp on it and i'll ask wadi that question
5: we're very concerned that you know we like i said we have this album sitting there waiting to go and if we were to start pulling the songs from the album by the time next summer comes around uh, that album would be we would have filleted out already. Gotcha. You know, so the idea was to put out a couple of the new ones that were written specifically for now, and then put in a few that we love doing for people. And, you know, there's the great version of New York minute and it's a live version of werewolves. And uh, they're both really uh, totally valid and and very cool. And people really dig hearing them. So, you know, rather than pull the the new material off the record, we want to, try to preserve the new stuff as long as we can. Otherwise we won't have an album to release.
2: That makes sense. So you didn't want to burn songs that you had written. So we'll give you a little taste of what we do live and and a cover. So that's good. Okay. That makes total sense. Now this album's number six on the blues chart. When I listen to the album, cruel twist is the only one that's kind of bluesy for me.
4: You stepped on a lot of toes And you broke a lot of hearts And you rubbed up and down Against a lot of
8: people's body parts You thought that loving would be good for you All that loving and you still feel blue Think about the life you missed It's such a cruel twist Such a cruel twist
2: how did you guys manage to uh to get into the uh, blues category, Steve? Do you want to take that one?
7: You'd probably have to call the powers that be, the people who wear the suits and make these decisions. Yes. I mean, I, I understand that clear, "cruel twist" is is a sort of blues tune, essentially. The rest are rock and roll songs. Yeah. But rock and roll, it came from blues. Sure. From Without blues, there's no rock and roll. And and we're a guitar-oriented band, and probably a lot of people think
2: that's blues.
7: And also, we all have the blues.
2: <laughs> well, we have the blues now, because we're still in lockdown.
7: Well, I can
0: imagine a bunch of guys sitting around the table at Billboard, you know, uh, they probably have these meetings where they listen to new releases. Right. And I can just see them being, you know, befuddled by what category do we put this in? You know, and the blues probably was the one that fit uh, the bill, the easiest.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, that makes sense. But again, just for me, you guys are, you guys are rock and roll, but you did blue. Yeah. You do blues. Great too.
5: Thanks. Slipping a slide. In that song has a pretty much of a blues. Uh, An underbelly to it. It's pretty funky and uh, pretty downstairs with the the acoustic slide and just where that song is coming from. It's pretty blue, that one. Pretty dark.
2: Uh, Rush, you've played with uh, many bass players throughout your career. What's different when you play with Leland?
0: Uh, I've played with Leland more than any other bass player in my career, even though I've played with lots of other ones. You know, we, we've we been playing music together for a really, really long time. And just like uh, Wadi was uh, explaining about him him playing with Danny, you know, uh, you know, knowing what the other one isn't doing. It's the same simpatico with Leland and I, you know, I I know what he's going to do just a second before he does it. And he knows exactly where I'm going to land two seconds before I do it. So we always end up in the same place. The answer being... We've worked together so much gotcha. it's a second nature. So
2: yeah. And Leland, how long did it take for that second nature thing to click in with, uh, with you and Russ?
3: A second. <laughs> I mean, it was amazing. The first time we ever played together, it felt like I, I went, as soon as I played with Russ, I felt like I had known this guy all my life. And uh, it was the, the most natural thing I've ever felt. That's, that's really been the beauty of this in, in, entire situation with us is uh, it, it's been effortless. Even, I mean, everybody came to the table deeply prepared. Everybody's, you know, it, it's called playing, but we're very, very serious about our music. And um, the first time any of us, first time I played with Waddy, first time I played with Cooch or, or Steve, and stuff, um, it just felt right. And Russ, for me, was like the easiest fit of any drummer I've ever known in my life. Um, and I've worked with lots of drummers, but there's just something that, he could be in one room and I could be in another room only listening to a click track and maybe looking at a, a chord sheet. And I guarantee you, when you come in and listen to the, to the playback, we would be catching everything together.
5: Excellent. And it's just, it's a
3: really natural thing. And plus I, I love cuddling with him. He's really a good cuddler. <laughs> he's so sweet. Yeah. yeah. He's affectionate to, to a fault.
7: If, if I can, if I can make just say statement. Absolutely. Oh, Steve. Oh, well. That for the for me and for us playing with the two of them has the same that rhythm section is so it's so obvious where things are that it just it's it makes it really beautiful to, to flow within like their thing is so beautifully strong that that it impacts
2: everything else in this very organic way. And when uh, when I saw you guys live, you know, sometimes when I go see a veteran artist, they seem to have slowed down a little bit, but the five of you were still playing full out, hard, fast, whatever you needed to do, and uh you guys just looked like you were, you know, just feeding off the energy and uh, I would assume the uh playing the music keeps you young and that's why none of you guys have retired yet. Wadi, is that true?
5: It's very very true, yeah. And and also the other aspect of it is that we've played with all kinds of different people and different types of music, but this is a rock and roll band and uh, that's what this is about. So that uh, energy that we live off of and we try to project to everybody is not coming from folk music and it ain't coming from ballads. It's coming from fucking rock and roll music. And that's why it's going to be as strong, as loud as possible and as precise and, and rocking as possible. It's definitely, that's the format. All right. You know, not, you know, I learned a while ago. You know, you 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 set out to do an album, and you got one song that's like this. You got this kind of a country song, then you got this beautiful ballad. You got a couple of up tempo tunes. And someone said to me, you know, what do you do? You know, I I I get the fact that you want to show all these aspects, but for example, you know, ACDC, you know what they do, right? They do one type of music, yeah. And even though we write different types of songs. rock and roll point of view gotcha. and even our pretty ballads and stuff are that way you know they're delivered like that rather than like well you know like that it's like that you know that's the difference this is a rock and roll band
2: uh danny this question is for you this is about the uh the running on empty album when you and russ and leland were touring with jackson brown in 1977 did you know that you were, he was recording those songs and that he was going to release those as a live album or did you th- guys think that you guys were just working the new material out and you were going to take it into the studio.
4: going to be a live album okay uh, jackson had talked to us about it we knew exactly what was going what was going to happen um we knew it was going to be a live album i shouldn't say we knew what was going to happen because uh, a lot of stuff happened that we never could have foreseen but uh, right. it was obvious it was going to be a new album and jackson being the fearless guy he is he wanted to present new material live bang and we did it you know and he presented it like it was his hits and people responded to those songs like they'd already heard them amazingly
2: yeah, it's a it's a pretty unique album in that way where these are these are all new songs. We've never heard these Jackson Brown recordings before, but just recorded in a live setting. And so, yeah, that's rare. I don't know that anyone's ever done it since.
5: It's very bold
2: and wildly successful. You know, amazing. Yeah. And the performances are just are stellar on that record. It's still I, I was listening to it just yesterday and uh, still sounds great. Bravo. I, how much how many times can I say bravo? But good job guys. Wadi just a uh, just a fun question, who's easier to work with, uh, Adam Sandler or James Taylor? <laughs> well.
5: <laughs> we're waiting. <laughs> it depends what year you're speaking of a James Taylor. All right. <laughs> and uh, Adam can clarify. <laughs> what? Who have you been hired by? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, who's hiring these days? Uh, I can't answer that. Okay. Is it just uh, for fun? They're both, they're both extraordinary, you
2: know. It, it elicited the uh, the response I had hoped, which was some giggles. So that was good. <laughs> Born in
1: 1935 in Brooklyn, New York, the son of Anna and Phil. At 19 years old, he married my mother Judy And immediately paid his first Bloomingdale's bill Right away they started on a family Three smart kids popped out of mom's tummy But then one steamy night, dad forgot to wear his raincoat Nine months later, out came the dummy But he took care of me oh Stan the man was my hero the coolest guy ever I swear
6: he stayed up all night making me a clay volcano
1: that's how I won the science fair
2: on a, on a uh, serious question Wadi on this album, you guys do the, uh, the werewolves of London and, and you throw out the line. We've all been fired by James Taylor. Have you really all been fired by James Taylor? Yes.
7: Except for Steve, Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and except for no, Steve. Fired too. We, we don't know that, that I, I may have been also. So.
5: <laughs> yeah, he's about to get canned by him too, but no, it is, it is true. Yeah. Okay. It's
2: true. Cause, cause, cause Leland, when I heard that on the re- record, I, I thought, well, that's tongue in cheek. They've, they've been not asked, Back for projects, but they haven't been fired. But
5: there's a difference.
2: Okay. <laughs> All right. All right. That's true. That's true. Okay. Besides,
5: uh, not being asked back was too many words. <laughs> I, I do have to tell you one thing,
3: though. I'm really digging the nail polish. I think you should keep, <laughs> I, should just keep
2: I should keep rocking it. I keep forgetting that uh, that it's on there. Uh, I'm, I'm, really, I'm really digging it. Last year, um, my daughter wanted to go get her uh, toenails painted, and I took her. And then she said, "Why don't you get your toenails painted too?" And I said, "Okay." So I did. And every time I stepped in the shower and looked down, I was I, I, w- I would jump because I wasn't expecting yeah. to see it. I kept thinking I had a fungus on my feet. So uh, that's yeah. how I kind of feel about this right now. I'm glad you're digging. it. No one else has this today, though, right? Just me. All right. Just you. Just, Just you. Uh, Leland, you've played on I think 2,600 albums. Which is that's like Steve Lukather type uh, credits. That's incredible. Luke,
3: Luke, Luke's just beginning.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's, that's <laughs> he, he's young. Yeah, he's <laughs> he, he's young. Uh, when you when you were tour when you tour with a band like Toto, when you step in to the position that uh, David Hungate or Mike Pocaro held, yeah. how do you play those songs but make it your own? You just don't want to yeah. repeat exactly what they were doing. Sesame.
3: Well, the thing is, David and Mike and I—we all had kind of similar styles, so it wasn't like I was coming in following Bootsy Collins and trying to cover. <laughs> all right. Like but the, the thing I did with when the first time I toured with Toto, I had five days to learn their show. So what I did is I immersed myself, and it was mostly Mike. It was all. It was they gave me a live show that Mike Picaro had been playing.
2: Okay. So,
3: I tried to honor that as close as I possibly could when I was learning the songs so that it wouldn't, there would be no like abrupt changes for the rest of the band. But by we by the time we were about a, a month into the tour, then I was injecting kind of the way I would have played the songs, but it, it happened in a very gradual way. So, and plus I, I'm known, I mean, I, I, the first time I worked with Luke, he was 19 years old. So, I mean, we've been, friends and work together forever so and i knew all the guys in the band so it was it was pretty easy with that gotcha. but uh, you try it's really honoring the songs and really listening to how they were doing them and you know not not changing it up but eventually throwing throwing my lack of personality into them
2: <laughs> yeah i would i would think that when you step into a a, a, a gig like that that you don't want to you don't want to just feel like you're just you know the bass player in a in a, in a toto cover band so i like how i like how you said after a while you would inject your own self into the songs that's cool
3: yeah and and also um yeah and when i've done live gigs i never use charts i always learn the material because to me if you go up there and you're people aren't familiar with you and you're suddenly up there got a music stand in front of you you look like hired help right so i really commit myself to learning the material so that when i walk out there I can take the stage and 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 plant my feet and not look like somebody didn't make it tonight and they found some guy down in the alley.
2: <laughs> Russ, this is a question for you as far as session work goes, because I'm always curious about how it works with the drummers. When you get hired to come in to play on a song, the drum parts aren't written out for you, are they? How does it work? Do you do you improvise? Are you giving uh, Are you given room to just improvise your parts?
0: Pretty much, yeah. <clears throat> Most of the sessions that I've done, there's just chord charts. Okay. Uh, so you kind of know your ways, the roadmap through the song. <clears throat> I might, um, and usually we listen to a demo or some sort of uh, recording of the, of the song, and I'll make some notes on my chart as to um, you know places that I want to pay attention to. But for the most part, I just wait for, you know, the kind of the, the muse to to shower me with some ideas of, of things to play. And and for the most part, I try to play things that I've never played before, try to come, come up with something unique.
2: And so you would, but you would decide when you wanted to insert a, a drum fill or all that kind of stuff.
0: Pretty much, you know, until uh, until someone puts the clamp on it, you know, and mm-hmm. says, don't do that. <laughs> you know? But I try to be tasteful so that that doesn't occur a whole lot.
2: my next question russ uh i don't want to cause trouble but why doesn't a drummer get some songwriting credit if he's creating part of the song
0: uh well, oh boy I, I, you know I, you know first of all i am a songwriter and right i happen to be in a band with really good songwriters right. so uh, I'm, I'm sure i'll be involved in the writing going forward but but um, but, uh, you know, sometimes I think drum parts really are important for, yeah. you know, for, for a character of, of a song, you know, for, uh, f- you know, for the how it's memorable. So um, but I, but being a songwriter myself, you know, it's I'm, I, I'm kind of on both sides of the fence of that.
2: Gotcha. And I didn't necessarily mean with these four other guys, I meant like when you're called into a session and you're doing some hard work on a song that you've just heard, you know, a few times and you're making it, you know into something more. I I always just feel the drummers uh, should get more songwriting credit, but I don't know. What do I know?
0: I'll say this, knowing, knowing what it takes uh, and the, the work and the, you know, and the sweat that it takes to, to go into writing a really good song. And that's a lot of work. And then the songwriters uh, deserve the writers and the publishing for that. Just because a drummer comes up with a lick doesn't mean they've worked as hard as the writers. Gotcha.
2: Okay. Uh, Danny, I want to go, uh, to you. I want to ask you a question. Uh, you've had, you know, wild success working uh, with Don Henley on his first few solo albums. Would you consider him or, or you can tell me who, uh, who's your greatest musical collaborator throughout your career?
4: I'd say these guys. All right. Great. The band. No, the immediate family. It's my favorite. For sure. It's your favorite. No, yeah. But, but I'd also have to say it was, You know, I I work with so many uh, Mm -hmm. genius level talents. We all have. So uh, it'd be hard to pick one out. Working with Henley was great and we had a lot of fun together. And Mm -hmm. It was definitely a collaboration because we co-wrote most of the songs and (laughs) co-produced it all. So, you know, that was a terrific collaboration. But all of them, er, every every opportunity I've had to play with, the incredible talent that I've been lucky enough to play with, they're all brilliant. And uh, so it'd be be hard to pick one out uh, over the other.
2: But you do, you have some, you have co writing credits on, on some, some big hits with Don. And then one of my favorite Jackson Brown songs, Somebody's Baby. fantastic so you know doing my research I uh, it started to uh, I, I started to realize wow Cooch really he's got he's got some a, a lot of songwriting credits on these things so I mean I'm impressive impressive body of work. that's
0: why he always buys dinner
2: <laughs> because the mailbox money Russ is that why
0: <laughs> he didn't say so where we he's very generous so <laughs> <that's
9: right. laughs>
2: Now uh, I'm going to go, I'm going to go around in a circle. I want you guys to tell me a little bit about Linda Ronstadt and when you guys would work with Linda Ronstadt, because for just a music fan and and a listener, I would feel like Linda's first take, it wouldn't get better than that in the studio. Like, how do you get better than that voice? Let's start with uh, Leland on that one.
3: You don't get better than that. She's one of the greatest voices of the generation or generations. Yeah. A fabulous, a fabulous artist. But one of my favorite moments with Linda, if you have time for a little anecdotal thing. I, we were absolutely.
2: Doing,
3: we were doing an album at the site up above San Francisco with her. And she's a voracious knitter. And she was knitting every day, you know, just like working away. And then one, one of the days I walked in and she was sitting working like this. And she, and I said, "What's going on?" She says, Oh well, my eyes are bothering me today. I can't see as well." And she looked up, and one of the lenses had fallen out of her glasses, and she didn't know it. So she was like sitting and knitting. So we went and found the gla- the lens was in the vocal booth, and put it in. Then she was sitting back knitting again. She's a she's such a character. It's unbelievable. <laughs>
2: Uh, wadi, what about you what uh, what can you tell us about Linda Ronstadt and that amazing voice like would would she be satisfied wadi with with her first take or was she uh, a, a taskmaster on herself?
5: We did surprisingly not many takes on some of those huge hits and uh, <clears throat> the other thing about Linda is those those vocals you're hearing are the take you know a lot of times you'll do a record with somebody and they'll have a guide vocal so. You know, either the artist will just sing a kind of a lackadaisical version of it Mm -hmm. because they know they're going to sing it. Um, But, and again, this reflects on Peter Asher's approach. What he wanted us, those songs are live in the studio, Blue Bayou, that's her live vocal on that record. the same with that'll be the day same with all the all the hits she's those are all live takes so those are complete takes and uh i don't know if they were first takes but they're not you know they were never dwelling on take after take after take Ooh, baby that that beautiful ballad russell plays on that with me and dave sanborn oh i think was on the date as well and and linda and these two great singers that's all live vocals you know She was astounding. She didn't need more than a couple of takes, and uh, fortunately, we were we were good and ready enough to uh, be there, solid behind her.
2: And just so, so for the, just so the listener knows, when you say a live take, you mean you don't mean that they were piecing lines together after the no. fact.
5: She was. Lead, she, it was like a, a performance. Yes. It was. It was not like a performance. It was a, literally a performance of the song. The band played everything you heard on Blue Bayou was played when she sang that vocal gotcha. from start to finish there were no punch ins there were no pickups you know no nobody there weren't any fixes on it even it's just it's a performance rather mm-hmm. than a uh, process a, a, a process yeah thank you yeah.
2: so so Danny when you're in the studio with Linda Ronstadt and you you know it's it's time to record in your head do you think well this is Linda so this is going to be this is going to be an easy day because she's going to nail it and I don't think that way. <laughs>
4: <That's> not, <laughs> how do you, you well, tell
2: me how you think? You
4: know? Well, there are no easy days and there's no hard days every day in the studio. If you go in and play with your brothers and you play with an artist like Juansted. It's a great day. Okay. It can never be anything but a great day. Of course, you know, just listening to her sing, being in the same room with her and being able to play music with her. is such an amazing treat. I mean, she's phenomenal, man. Let me tell you, she is off the charts. Great. I mean, we all know she's great. But when you go play with her, you realize how amazing she really is.
2: aren't retiring ever because I feel like when musicians retire that's when it's over that's when life ends and you guys are still I can see it in your eyes you guys are still vital and full of life and passion and love for this music has retirement ever crossed you, your mind at, at all why would, for, why would you
4: retire why would you retire from something you absolutely love exactly that's so much a part of you you know why do you not start playing guitar when we were 10 years old and're gonna stop there's nothing gonna stop you just, you don't stop you can't you know, uh, and so retirement is not a word that comes in. I don't, I think for the most reasons, it's not a,
0: it's not, a, it's not, a, not an option. No. I'll tell you what though. The only way retirement kind of gets into the game for me is I'm retiring to do just this band. Gotcha. That's, that, yeah, that's you're
2: you're yeah. full on in the immediate family. This is it. Yeah, yeah, this is it. And Russ, how, um, cause the drummer, that's a taxing job. I'm not saying the other, the other, uh, performers it's not taxing but the drummer it's physical it's more physical sometimes how do you stay fit how do you keep going
0: well i swim a lot and i still surf which being active no matter what your job is yeah it helps, you to, it helps you to stay fit i try to eat good and uh you know i just want to make sure that uh, when these guys need me i'm going to be there you know so it's uh, it's important to me you know, one thing I wanted to say about Linda Ronstadt, which I thought Wadi would have said, is she's a rocker, you know, yeah. from, from Jump Street. And I would put her in the category of a Frank Sinatra. I mean, she is, you know, she's one of the voices of all time. You know, so.
2: And yet she's yeah. a rocker and yet she can sing anything, all, yeah. all types of music. And not just, not just sing it. Uh, she's sell, I mean, she lives it. She sells it. It's not just like, oh, I think I'll sing country now, or I think I'll do some standards. No, she can do it. She can do all of it. It's it's incredible.
7: I never played with it, but she taught Wadi how to microwave a hot dog, and he taught me. So I've sort of, some of that knowledge has been passed on to me as well.
5: <laughs> yeah, it's a little road, a little road knowledge. And, you know, the thing about her also is that we're used to hearing her belt songs out you yeah. know she's the loudest i mean standing next to her singing you, you, you can't hear anything but her she's unbelievably loud but and i told her this when we started working together that when she sings softly it's the most gorgeous sound that's ever been on the planet like it's the, that song uh Think i'm gonna love you for a long long time just listen to the first two lines of that song It's the most breathtakingly gorgeous thing you've ever heard. And I told her this, I said, by the third line, you're blasting again.
9: Love will abide, take things in stride. And I think I'm going to love you for a long, long
5: time. But those first two lines, it's incredible how delicate and beautiful that sound is that she makes. When she sings softly, the world is crying. man. It's it's, fr- it's frightening. She also commits deeply. I think when she did La Boheme,
3: um, she studied Italian. Cause she really wanted to, to understand what she was singing. You know, I mean, there's it, a lot of singers will just go through the motions of it, but she, she goes way under the surface on every one of the genres that she does. Yeah. Completely.
2: Yeah. There's not a lot of singers that can make you bang your head one minute. And then you then you have chills on your arm the next minute. And that would be Linda Ronstadt for me. Yeah. Steve, uh, you're working in a band situation after, you know, being a solo guy. How's that transition going for you?
7: Well, I've I've always had bands.
2: Right, right. But it's been, but it's been under the your name. You know what I mean? Now this is a band. Yeah,
7: but the but the but for me the I never had the the ultimate bands for me were like of course the Beatles and then the band Little Feet and I, and the idea of being in a band where everyone in the band was a complete like personality and someone who would inspire me everywhere I looked was a dream of, of mine like because that's what influenced that's what I wanted yeah those were the bands I loved, the stones everyone was a unique powerful and and so this what that's what this is I I look around and I'm I'm musically personally it's this is what to me the idea of a great band is is this
2: gotcha Leland yes. as a bass player who Why the bass? Why did you choose the bass and who were some of the uh, artists that you looked to that made you want to play bass?
3: Well, well, the, the bass came to me. I started as a classical pianist when I was a kid. And when I entered junior high school, I assumed I'd be the piano player and they had a plethora of young piano players, but they needed a string bass player. And the music teacher who I owe basically my entire career to, his name was Ted Lynn. Um, brought out an old K upright and put it in my hands. And I plucked one note and felt that vibration. And I said, sold. I said, I'm there. I left the piano at that point and focused, had several different teachers over the years. Um, and you know, for me, I was kind of a jazz classical snob for the most part. And I was like into Ray Brown and Red Calendar and Mingus, and listened to all, all of those guys. Um, but it really wasn't until the Beatles hit that my life changed dramatically and then my dad took me to the musicians union on vine street because stein on vine used to actually be in the building of the musicians union and bought me a melody bass and a saint george amp and i was electric and never looked back and uh, but all there's so many influences to me almost anybody that picks up a bass can be an influence it doesn't have to be a monster chops person sometimes the the, the neophytes, I learn more from them because I've forgotten so many of those things about just getting back to simplicity and and things rather than just sitting there doing all kinds of crap. Um, so I you know I enjoy it all you know but there's there's always been the Jack Bruces and Ed whistles and, and Bob mosley and and so many wonderful Jack Cassidy, so many great bass players but you know, there's. You know, you turn on YouTube, and you're going to see nothing but monstrous musicians everywhere. I'm just grateful to be at this end of my career, that rather than starting now.
2: Uh, Danny, you said uh, that you picked up guitar at 10 years old. Are you were you from a musical family? What what got you interested in guitar?
4: Well, my parents weren't weren't musicians, but um, my grandparents were. My mother's side were very very famous, very well known, and very well respected classical musicians. But uh, it skipped a generation, I guess. Uh, in any case, my mother thought I'd look cute with a guitar when I was ten years old. Yeah. <laughs> so, she was so right. She got me a she wow. Got me a, a, she got me a Stella guitar for like you know twenty bucks or something. And I sat there with it and struggled and struggled and struggled for a couple of years. Played my stupid scales and then and then I found the three chords that it, with which you can play every rock and roll song: the one, the four, and the five. And at that point, the heavens opened. You know, the clouds parted, the sun came out, and that was it. That was it. I, I never looked back. Cool. Does that answer your question? I'm not
2: sure. I think so, yeah. I think that's good. That's good. I don't play an instrument, so I'm fascinated. You know, the kids play instruments. My wife plays instruments. I, I'm just a fan of music, and it just it boggles my mind when I see them playing anything. So, you know, when I see you guys, it's off the charts. Wadi, do you have the same type of a story as uh as Danny as far as playing guitar? Um.
5: Mm, they didn't think I looked cute, no, uh, <laughs> and I had to agree with them. But uh, actually, I was—I uh, was always singing tunes uh, even before I, you know, fell onto the guitar. I was—I thought everyone did the same thing. I just was any song I'd hear, I'd learn, and uh, I was imitating singers and stuff like that when I was very young. And um, when I was five years old, um, I was standing next to my mom and. There was a, like a big band show on television, black and white TV. And and all of a sudden they cut to this guy that was sitting there playing this big jazz box, the big jazz guitar. And I, I just froze. I completely just was mesmerized by it. And, and I said to my mother, what is, what is that? What's, what's going on? What's, what's happening here? What's, what's he doing? What is that? What's he, what's that guy doing? And she said, that's, he's playing a guitar. And I went, Guitar, okay, that's what I want, and she goes, You're five. I said, Yeah, well, that's what I want to do, that's what I'm gonna do. And uh, so it took till uh, I was nine years old, and my father finally gave in and bought me a guitar, and I started taking guitar lessons at nine. So, but uh, you know, like I said, I I thought everyone did the same thing, you know, everyone must be singing these same tunes, and they weren't, which sounds like guitar. Ble- blew me away. I, I, I was just addicted the second I saw this guy play it.
2: It sounds like you guys uh, for the most part had supportive families uh, in regard to you guys becoming musicians.
5: My dad fought me for years about it, but finally, I say, you know, from, from age five till nine, you know, four years of, give me a good guitar, damn it. <laughs> give me a ukulele. I said, you know, I know how to count. There's only four <laughs> strings on this.
7: This is not a guitar. And it's kind of small you know, that thing was big. and uh, <laughs> I, I had a very similar experience. As a matter of fact, that guitar there, yeah that's a 1964 Goya, and that's the one. And I, I had a very similar experience to Wadi. It just hit me like when I was about five. I saw a guy playing, and I begged them for it, and, that, and they finally got me that guitar when I was eight or nine. So the guitar
2: that's behind you, Steve, that's the, the same guitar from when you were eight or nine?
7: That's a Goya nylon string that I got that was my first guitar.
2: I mean, unless you break a guitar, it's going to last forever, right? You take care of it, right? Yeah. How many, uh, Leland, how many basses do you own?
3: Uh, I'm not a collector. I've probably got a dozen basses. But for the most part, uh, they're all usable in my career. I really don't think an instrument should sit in a closet. Yeah. Um, And there's there's bass players like, I think John Entwistle had like 600 basses you know, cause he covered walls with them. I mean, he, and I was fortunate. He bought a base of mine um, that I, that I hated, but it looked beautiful. So he bought it from me and, and hung it, but um, I'm pretty, I'm not a gearhead mm-hmm. at all. Yeah. You know, I, I pretty much have what I need and uh, I've gotten rid of a lot of stuff. I've given away stuff. If I have friends that have a, a kid that wants to learn bass, I figured it'd be nice for them to start on something decent rather than some piece of crap that could discourage them. So I've loaned a lot of instruments. Oh, that's out. nice.
2: That's good. You
3: know, Paid it forward. Say, I say, look, I just say, look, if, if you're not going to stay with it, I want it back. If you're going to stay with it, then you can have it.
2: I would stay with it. <laughs> Russ, uh, a drummer, you, you know, you go on tour, you have one kit. You don't, you don't take a bunch of guitars, a bunch of basses with you. How many pieces are in the typical kit that Russ Kunkel would play on tour?
0: Well, there would be a kick drum, a snare drum, maybe two rack toms, a floor tom, four cymbals, hi hat, a seat, and you'd carry an extra snare drum or two and an extra uh, kick, pe- an extra pedal and some extra heads.
2: But for the most part, you can get all the sound out of that that you need to do.
0: I don't even need that much. Nice, but yes,
9: yeah, yeah.
2: So when you when you see a rock band that's got a ridiculous gigantic drum set, do you just do you just shake your head like you you don't need all that? Is that all for show?
0: Well, no. I mean, I've in in the section I played a, a much bigger uh, drum kit. Okay, and you know, on the run-in tour, I, I've done I've gone down that road, but I you know in uh, as I got wiser and older, I realized that you know you don't need all that you know so. I've, I've, pared it down to just the basics.
2: I like how you added the word wiser in there. <laughs> uh, Wadi, I want to ask you about the uh, expensive winos you played with Keith and the expensive winos. And then in, uh, I think 97, you play on a Rolling Stones album. You kind of replace Keith on the song Sane of Me. How does that happen does does keith say i don't want to do it get waddy to do it or what's what's the story about that song
5: all i knew was uh yeah i i I was on that bridges album uh we were there for three months every night it was pretty astounding and all of a sudden mick just (laughs) came to me and said come here you gotta play on this tune you know you gotta play on this so why he goes just play on it (laughs) okay
2: so you're like an unofficial stone
5: Yeah, that's me. Yeah. Yeah. I'm very, very, very lucky. I'm very, uh, I was amazed it happened. Uh, Jim Keltner and I were there together every night for like three months. It was astounding. We'd look at each other in the hallway going, we're still here, right? This is happening, you know.
2: And are you, are you, are they, are they utilizing you and Jim Keltner every night? Or are they just, are you guys just, you're there if they need you?
5: Oh, no, we were playing every night. All right. Yeah. Ch- Ch- Charlie would be playing the drums. Jim was set up next to him and uh, he'd either be playing kid or he'd be playing shakers or sound, you know, other sounding things, uh-huh. other percussion things. And and Keith and Woody and I, were, we played on everything. <laughs> just, so just what's it
2: when you when you meet, you know, because you're you're a successful musician. When you finally get to meet like a, a Mick and Keith and then you become friends with them. How do you separate like being a, a fan? Because I assume you're probably a fan of the Rolling Stones. Yeah. you know prior to becoming a sure. successful musician how did how long does it take until you're like okay now i feel like i'm a peer
5: well you know you uh you're meeting a person really you're, yeah. you, you got to put it in perspective uh we just uh hit it off right away as 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 dudes would uh mick jagger and i got into like a uh, little song, I can outdo you on the phrasing of this song, kind of competition thing. Uh, right away, we sat down at this party. We, we I met them all during through Linda. Actually, uh, Mick and Woody came to the show here in Los Angeles, and we went and hung out that night at someone's house and just had a you know got to know each other that way. And uh, and then when we went to England with Linda, uh, Keith was there after the show. I came back downstairs and there's Keith Richards standing there and I just thought, Oh, wow, rolling stone. And uh, you're not much taller than me either. I like that. And he goes, Hey, nice to meet you, man. And we spent, we spent the next three days just sitting around, listening to music, playing guitars and smoking cigarettes and trying to stay as sober as one drunken (laughs) night can keep you. And uh, we had a ball, you know, we, we, we just communicated as, musicians and dudes rather than, uh, all the accolades I could have laid on them. I, I chose not to, and, uh, was really glad I didn't, uh, you know, they, 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 are very, uh, real guys. And if you get in a situation where you're one-on-one with them, uh, you'll find that that's uh, pretty much how they are. Nice. Uh, you know a lot of stuff, but they're just dudes, you know, they, uh. I've seen them argue with each other. I've seen them. Then the next day I saw them like <laughs> just saw, like two kids at camp together. I'm going, well, who are you two? Weren't you, <laughs> you know, at each other's throats last night or what? Nah, fuck, fuck that. You know, don't matter. <laughs> fuck that. You know, it's like, it's like, a, it's like not, not unlike Don and Phil Everly kind of, you know, yeah. uh, there's a, there's a, a communication between them that's no one can touch. So.
2: Danny, a, song, a songwriting question for Danny again. And, and again, Danny, I'm not avoiding your guitar prowess. I know that I've been talking a lot of guitar with Wadi and a lot of songwriting with you. But uh, I want to ask you a question. Was there a song that you wrote that became a hit that when, just after you wrote it, you knew this is something, this is going to be something?
4: Well, you know, it's hard to know uh, whether a song is going to be a hit or not. What I think about it, do I love it? Is it great? That's mm-hmm. the only uh, criteria I have for songs. I never say, that's a hit. You right. Know, some producers and a lot of A and R guys have used that expression, but I don't say that. I know it's I know it's really good, and I know what I love. But whether other people are going to love it too, I'm never sure about. But I know when I, when something is really, really good.
2: Gotcha. So thinking, so. So, sing, calling something a hit would be more something that an A and R guy would do. You're just out to write the best song possible that you enjoy. Yeah. I right. get, and I guess New York Minute's one of those because you guys put it on this, the EP. Yeah, and the version yeah. on the EP is great. I mean that well it's very
4: different than the way than the way Henley did it yeah. the way Henley did it was more jazzy and more uh, restrained and the way we do it is rock and roll it's like a rock and roll ballad the way we do it which I love and the song holds up very well in that uh, with that treatment
2: and did you did you always envision that song as more rock and roll
4: sakes um, yeah that, well that's what the band does that's what we do yeah. that's how we play so yeah it's um, you know so everything we do comes out as rock and roll no matter what no matter how it starts, yeah. it comes
2: out as rock and roll. Is, 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 that, that, Henley is that Henley? That's what I was going to say. Is that Henley giving fucking you? Phone,
5: <laughs> Ask somebody else a question. i got to get that.
2: Take it. Take I it. want
5: to tell you something about, about Danny uh, uh, in answer to what you were asking mm-hmm. him about knowing it's a hit. Yeah. And, and I totally agree with him. You know, you just try to write the song, you know. But when I went by his house and he played me, talking about Danny, the night I came by your place and you played me, all she wants to do is dance demo. Yeah I said this is a fucking smash. Mm-hmm. And the words weren't even on it yet I don't think. It was just well, that anyway, train was mm-hmm. it was it was mind-boggling. It was so great it was of destined to be a smash. They're
1: picking up business the putting them in a pen.
2: And I I
4: knew that was, I knew it was rocking, you know, I knew knew it was, you know, it was, a grew for sure.
2: And musically, all she wants to do is dance. It seems quite different from other things that you had done or participated in in the past. I mean, it does have a, a dancey, you're giving me a look like, no, this is what I do. But, um, you as a listener, that's where I'm coming from.
4: I don't see it as that much of a departure from other (laughs) stuff that I've done. All right. Uh, because, uh, you know, I, I, I just don't think that way, you know. Uh, but I was definitely attracted to the idea of, of a, an ass shaker, shall we say. Okay, you know, oh, oh, I like that. that. And, All right. And I wanted it to rock. I wanted to have a big beat. And uh, so and I think most of my tunes are like that. Most of my tunes have to have that, that uh, rock and beat.
2: Hey, I want to give a shout out to Rob Shanahan who did the photos for this EP. You guys look cool. These are great mm-hmm. photos. You guys really look, uh, I mean, ama- I I you guys look amazing what you can do (laughs) no you all really do these are great photos you look tough in a couple you look cool i love it
4: rob's great rob did a fantastic
5: job uh, he's He's the best
2: uh now one last thing before we go first of all everyone go out and buy slipping and sliding and uh let's make this move up a couple more notches on the charts let's you know we're at six let's keep going and we all look forward to a full album, studio album from you guys, and you guys finally getting on the road. What, what are you guys doing during lockdown? Are you just, you just playing on your own? What, what do you guys do to keep the chops up? you guys always play?
4: Yeah, we always, we always play. All of us always play all the time, individually. What we do collectively has to be, um, uh, like we do live streaming concerts. Mm-hmm. We've done a couple of those. We're going to do some more, and uh, that kind of stuff. So, um, basically, we, we keep busy, you know, to the yeah. degree that we can, given the circumstances. And doing, doing the videos. We've been, been, been shooting, own,
5: shooting our own material for the videos and having a great, great, great editor putting them together. So, it, it takes up some time, too.
2: Leland and Russ, when you guys do these live streaming concerts, with the technology we have, you guys can get in sync and it feels, it feels like you're playing together?
0: No, we've no, done no. we've done three of them now. Uh, I mean, uh, what are you talking about when we're doing things individually? Or when
2: no, no, when you're doing like a live stream and you're playing, you're all in separate places, but you're all playing together. Yeah.
0: No, no, no. Yeah.
7: We,
3: we no live streams. We live. We we, play, yeah, we 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 filmed them as a band. Okay, so
2: you we had, like yeah. germs, so it's okay. Go, okay, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, so well, yeah, you guys, you guys all have each other's germs, so you're cool. You can be together. I, know, yeah. I get it.
7: In the
0: beginning, we did do some of the separate ones. Uh, we did a videos where we are all doing our parts separately. Okay, and we do our parts separately when we make the videos. But in the end, it does it. It feels homogenous when we're finished with it.
7: Actually, New York Minute the, on the on the EP was was done that way. And it Was done yeah. It separately. Yeah.
2: Oh wow. Okay. Cool. Final thing I would like to ask. We'll get some thoughts from all of you on the the late great uh, Warren Zevon. I'll start with uh, Russ. What can you tell? The, uh, my listeners, uh, something special about what it was like working with Warren.
0: Well, the first thing that comes to mind is I really regret not getting to spend more time with him than I did. I mostly spent time with him in the studio and it was a it was a pure joy. He had the driest sense of humor. I mean, he just <laughs> he was just the best. I mean, every time he opened his mouth, something brilliant came out, you know, and uh, it was an honor to uh, you know be a part of making his music. Thanks to him and Waddy and Jackson for including me in those records.
2: Excellent. Pleasure. Leland?
0: Uh, Exactly what Russ said. I feel
3: exactly the same way. Uh, Danny? There was nobody like Warren.
4: He (laughs) He was in a class by himself as a human being, as a songwriter in every way. One of the brightest people I ever met, actually. One of the absolute smartest individuals I had ever encountered. Very well read. Very intelligent. He knew a lot about a lot of stuff. That you know uh, um, he was just a very well educated guy he could talk on a lot of subjects brilliant, hilarious I loved being around him I got to hang out with him a lot after he, he gave up drinking for a while and he was uh, <laughs> just a joy and a delight absolutely wonderful person to be around Wadi spent the
5: most time with him though
2: and so Wadi will go to you last then uh, for that reason
5: oh Steve, no, Steve, I don't Steve, uh, you got anything to say about Zivon? no
7: I, well, I, went, I was making a record at A and M, and you must have been there. And uh, they said, you know, Warren Zevon's in the next uh, studio. Want to go with Dan Nash? Was brought me in there. Oh, yeah. And uh, he was just—he was a figure unlike any, any, all the rest of them. Like, he was so unique in his humor and, and intellect, and his persona. Of just being in the studio for a little bit of time, I, I wouldn't be surprised if Wadi had been in that room. But anyway. No, was, uh, he was just someone that, cause I've always looked up to people who, you know, used to had, had brains going on as well as, but he was just unique and the coolest guy. I was just thought there's the coolest guy I ever
2: met. Well, Steve, when you were, when you would read or hear a Warren Zevon lyric, you knew that there was a, that the brains were there oh, yeah. Yeah. and, and and the, and the, and the sense of humor.
7: So great. So great.
2: And Wadi, uh, and thank you for for uh, pointing out that I miss Steve. So sorry, Steve. Wadi, you, you're, you're last now on The Warrens, Yvonne.
5: Well, everything everyone just said about him is completely false. He was a fucking pain in the ass. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> he was a doll. He was an abstract, bizarre character. When we met, he was <laughs> more committed to drinking than anybody I had ever come across in my life. I would never seen anybody behave like that. But we uh, spent a year on the road together with the Everly Brothers, and in that in that year, I we 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 bared a lot of uh, resentment towards each other and argued about music every night. Just about, but we would, but all night long every night we would get together and play either some great blues songs that he knew, or we were both very addicted to country music, which was a perfect thing to do because then we had. He and I just learning and singing Merle Haggard songs all night long, and then Donald and Phil would wound up hanging out with us every night and we'd just be singing beautiful music all night long. But uh, he and I would argue constantly about songs, about music, about songwriters. Uh, the only things we agreed on were the Stones and, uh, and Merle Haggard, but we, we developed this relationship where he'd write these songs and I, I, had, he, I could hear how they should go down I could arrange his stuff, not easily, but it made sense to me. Just hearing his tunes, I knew what to do with with a band. And uh, that was our relationship with that. And we went went in for Excitable Boy. Uh, I had this whole cast of characters with me making this incredible record and it was a joy. Uh, he and I, we butted heads a lot and we got to a point where the album wasn't finished, Uh, I didn't think it was finished. There was a couple of songs on that record that I really thought should not be there. Jackson and Warren kind of clung to these two songs they'd recorded before I got there. And I just kept saying, those songs don't make it. man. And and sure enough, we had a playback party one night uh, against my wishes. And side one went exactly as side one goes on that record. But side two had these two, as I called, duds on it and by the time side two ended most of the people that were at this playback party left and I called a meeting with my two brothers and I said all right look you see what happened that's because of those two tunes they got to go and I'm leaving tomorrow to go out on the road with Linda but I need two more songs from you Warren and I'm back and I'm back in like a week and a half and you got to have them ready he goes we got to get this thing finished and I came back and I called him I said what's going on he goes I got them.' But you do because, yeah, come on over. I come over and he plays me lawyers, guns, and money. Wow. And plays me tenderness on the block. And we were just crying with joy together. That's
2: amazing.
5: And it was so wonderful. And and because I just got back from being on the road with Rick Morata and with Kenny Edwards, we booked a session, went in the next day at 11 in the morning, and by 3 o'clock, cut both those songs. And uh, Warren and I spent... A little time. I got I got to do a lot of guitar stuff on Tenderness on the Block that I really was very proud of and really happy with.
8: Mama, where's your pretty little girl tonight? Trying to run before she can walk. That's right, she's growing up. She has a young man. Sound
9: of love.
5: And we were just in heaven, you know, we were loving it. And when the record company picked Werewolves, we were aghast. They were so right, and we were so wrong. We were so blinded by our, you know, excellent taste in music that we thought for sure one of these other tunes had to be the single. And they said, no, 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 Werewolves of London is the single. And we were so happy to be as wrong as we were. Because
2: <laughs> <laughs> now, I mean, it's iconic. You, you, everyone knows werewolves of London.
5: Yeah, so we had a lot of time together, and uh, I miss my crazy dear brother quite.
2: A well, thank you all, all of you for sharing uh, the memories and uh, and stories about Warren and and all the stories today. I want to do a little promoting for you guys. You're on Twitter at the. I'm going to say Ahmed family. It's uh, I-M-M-E-D family is on Twitter and websites immediatefamilyband.com. The album is slipping and sliding. And you can get it everywhere. You can get physical copies. You can download it. And we didn't even, we didn't even talk about uh, hardly anything that you guys have done. Uh, Carol King, uh, Stevie Nicks, Dan Fogelberg, Carly Simon. I mean, you guys have, it would take days to discuss, everything that you guys have worked on and done and were successful at. Uh, do any of you five, is there, are you guys thinking about writing a book? Is anyone in the middle of writing a book? Wadi? Yes or no? No, no. Danny.
4: The immediate family is our book. <laughs> yeah,
2: that's it. I love that the, the Danny is it's, he's all in on the immediate family. That's that's, that, that's what you Leona. need. That's what you need. That's, that's good. You should do it. You, that's how it should be. That's how it should yes. be. Um,
5: Modern vision.
2: Uh, guys, thanks so much for doing this. This was a lot of fun. You, I hope you guys had fun. Uh, thanks sure. to Lisa Roy. She's amazing. And Steve, I'm going to use a song from the album as my playout song today. Do you want to choose it for me?
5: Before you do that, Steve, tell them what label it's
7: on. Oh, it's on Quarto Valley Records.
2: Quarto Valley Records.
7: And uh, mm-hmm. I would I would go with the uh, with slipping and sliding. It's just yeah.
2: the, all right. The title track of the EP, slipping and sliding. All right, you guys got it. Thank you so much, Russ Kunkel, Leland Sklar, Thanks, Steve Postel, Danny Cooch, Korchmar. I love your I love your sly little grin and Wadi Wachtel. Uh, I love you all so. Thank you Thanks, so much, buddy. guys. Take care. Thanks, Thanks. Guys. Love you, brothers. Thanks so much. Take Thanks care. For having us. You're, You're welcome. Good. I appreciate it. My pleasure. All right, I'm ending it. We'll wave. Goodbye.
8: Bought okay. a man in the street flip his wings like a